what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn, we've got to do a new ad, mate. We do. We're long overdue. We're not going to be sponsoring Einzerwiener anymore. Yeah, well, fuck that no longer. He's fucking not paying us. <laughs> no. We've just figured out. No, we just, we... He's sitting right here in front of us <laughs> and we've just figured out he hasn't actually been paying all no this time. No wonder there's no bread and milk on my table fuck. in this house. After we were just nice to him. <laughs> we're just, fuck him. We were just flattering him. We were just whining and dining him, <laughs> looking after him like a big fucking client. We'd look after and then we find out he hasn't find been paying us. Find out he hasn't bill. been paying us. He's doing it right now, so we, <laughs> we may as well tell people if they're in Australia and you need dog gear. Don't get it from him. Well, get it from wait, him. Wait until he pays the get bill. Get it from him so that he can pay us. <laughs> What's your stupid website, Jason? E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. There you go. Get your stuff from there. Okay. All right, on to the real sponsors. Yes, the people who actually pay the bills. Canine Suticles. Yep. The best canine Suticles. Premium grade, yep. human quality. Yeah. It's going gangbusters at the moment. Thank you to the community who have been supporting yep. it. It's great shit. Dan Croft. Yes. In Canada. In Canada. Yes. Toronto, Canada, I believe. Yeah. Yes. What were we pushing for him? It's puppy class. Puppy class. Yeah. Amazing puppy classes in a great facility. Barbara de Groot. From the heart dog training. Barbara just loves us. And we she love just Barbara. loves us. Barbara is our sugar mama. <laughs> yeah. That literally is the thing's called, right? Yeah. The tear that she called. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The sugar mama tear. Thank you, Barbara. We Thank appreciate you. Thank you, We love you. Horny George Kittredge. Yes. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Yeah. yeah. The box is incredible. I saw it for the. Did we talk about this? Have we done an we ad have. since? We yeah. have talked about how amazing the boxes is. You and I traveled from. Where did he pick us up? What, what airport that was, was that? Uh, in Colorado. Colorado. He showed us the prototype. Yeah. We was talking through it. You and I were sort of thinking, this is never going to take off. Yeah. And finally. He does it, he pulls it off. Not only does he pull it off, it's fucking brilliant. Like it's safe. And he also does classes where he teaches people how to use them as well. Like teaches the dogs how to get up on the bike seat and then load into the box itself. And it's bloody brilliant. It's incredible. Really proud of George. Lovely guy. And I'm really happy that this is paying out for him. All right. Daniel Trapino? It's actually Tropiano. He corrected me. Okay. So anyway, Daniel Trapino. (laughs) <laughs> Dog Club South Dog Club, Australia. Australia. Yeah. It's a cool little facility he's got there. It's a there. great facility. Get yes. in, check it out. He does all the, all the training. Yeah, he's decked it out. He's got it all looking schmick. It's a bit street. It's a bit edge. It's a bit kitschy. You yeah, know? he's got some cool artwork. Yeah, it looks there. good. Check yeah. it out for yeah, sure. It's great. It's about time South Australia started lifting its game. Good on you, Daniel. Yeah, leading the charge down there. Well done. We've got a new one. Who we got? Tailored Canines. We have two. They contacted us on Instagram, yep. stumbled into our advertising <laughs> tier, and away <laughs> we go. Yep. So they're in Canada. They are. They're in Ontario. Gold, Nipopo gold people. Yeah. Gold multiplicators. I think, I think they're a gold multiplicator. Yep. yep. So if you're recently certified as a silver school and you're mm-hmm. looking for somewhere to do your gold yep. and you're around the Canada or just anywhere up that northern part of the Americas, Check it out. Tell so they the do puppy, adult group classes, private and board and train programs. There you go. Tell so the thank you for jumping on and advertising with us. Hey, everyone. 
If you would like to be an advertiser, <laughs> don't do it. Reach out to us. Shut up, you bullfed. So I know that on Patreon, and we appreciate people just putting money in there. That's wonderful. Yes. But we do have to limit how many people we have. And so get in contact with us. Make sure that we actually can serve you and that we actually, you know, can provide you value as an advertiser. And that you align with our ethos as well. Of that, course. That's very important. That would be appreciated. To recap. Our sponsors are, and the people we love because they give us a lot of money. Yes. Well, it's not a lot of money, but some money. Yeah. Einzewick, he promises he's going to do it. He's, look, I'm looking at him now. I'm looking at the reflection of him fixing Has it. Has that gone through yet? No, because still trying. Has got shit behind <laughs> Dan Croft, puppy classes, yep. cool facility. Barber de Groot. Amazing sugar mama, love her, from the heart dog training. George Kittridge. Rowdy Hound Dog Boxes. Daniel Tropiano, Tropino. Tro- dog clubs, Troppy <laughs> Daniel, <laughs> dog clubs, <laughs> Australia, yeah, and new to the family, tailored canines, yeah, all the way from Ontario, Canada. So we've got two Canadians. That'll do advertising. Yeah, mo- do. mostly from the United States. One from Oz. Well done, well played. Thank you, sirs and madam. Check them out. They support us. Yeah. You should support them. Yep. Here's a show. There's a show now. Here's a show. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. Opposite me, we've got Alex Edwards. And with us, all the way from the US, here to do a couple of seminars, the man that's been on the show before, Mr. Michael Ellis. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Thanks for being here. It sounds funny because we've been with each other all days and then yeah, say hello. Like do very <laughs> formal introductions and so forth. When the seminar was getting set up and we set up a Facebook page, Mm -hmm. the password to get in the Facebook page was Birdwatcher. Okay. And it doesn't matter if people do it now because the seminar is going to happen. It's too late, suckers. It's over. It's too late. (laughs) You won't get in because nobody else is getting in. But the password was Birdwatcher. And some people said, why is he a bird watcher? Because <laughs> in Australia, as we explained to Michael, like sometimes you say a lady is a bird and stuff like that. And nah, some people okay. are going, ooh. Sounds a little and creepy. And I said, no, no, no. <laughs> he likes watching birds that fly around, feathered mm-hmm. birds. And today I went on a little mini trek with Alex where we climbed up and down in the Galston Gorge uh, looking at birds. And there is an amazing amount of birds in trees when you actually go looking for them. Mm-hmm. So it was a fascinating journey. And I got to share that with Michael and Alex. And that was really cool. It was something that I wouldn't go out of my way to do on myself, but I did enjoy it. And what I enjoyed most about it, which I told Michael on the journey, was how passionate he is, but how he never made that boring. And he made it very inclusive for both of us along the way. Like he talked to us about what he was seeing what he enjoyed so much about the birds. Like he gets off on nature and he loved all of the different trees. Wow, and It's amazing. Here. Yeah, the simple things like banksias and stuff like that. Like he really loves looking at nature and, and it's all genuine stuff. It's not contrived. It's not like, oh, I'm so happy to be in your country. I'm just going to pretend to love it. Mm. Like he loves all of that sort of stuff. I think that's a rarity in some people that you meet that they have such a genuine love for things that you kind of feel like, wow, I get it. I, mm. I really see it. It was a privilege to go along for a little walk with Michael Ellis and feel a connection with things that he sees and live the narrative the way that he explained it. I really enjoyed myself. It's been awesome. When I picked Mike up from the airport, went to my place, 
And then he basically dropped his stuff off and he's like, I'm off to look at birds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm off to a private session. Mike's running around with his binoculars looking at finches and find him fascinating. And since then, it's been the Michael Ellis School for Birds last week. So we, had an, Alex perfect. Yeah. we had an email from all the birds in our backyard saying, hey, there's a guy out in the in the <laughs> morning like dude. looking at us when we're getting dressed. This is weird. <laughs> no, your country is amazing. It's remarkable. And it's a, an excuse to just look closely at the world around you. Yeah. Like to slow down, to really be there, be present. You could do it without it. But I, years ago, I just developed a kind of fascination. There's a detective puzzle to the whole thing. Like, ooh, what's that? Can I figure out what it is? And you have to work at it a little bit. You know, there's all the obvious ones. But then if you want to see the little thing flitting around at the top of the tree, you have to work a little bit. But the whole world kind of opens up. And these days, it feels like you need an excuse to slow down and just stop and be fully present especially if it doesn't feel like you're accomplishing anything. For me, it's just those two things are woven together. And in a new landscape like this, it's like everything's an adventure. Mm. That is new. That is new. That is new. And it's it's just fabulous. You guys, are, thanks think, for indulging me. <laughs> man, it was a pleasure. Like seriously, it was a real pleasure. I've enjoyed doing things, as I've said to you, but I didn't know whether I'd really enjoy looking at birds. But I kind of did because of you. Like I said, you made it fun and you made it cool. You have a very genuine way of caring about the people around you rather than just making it like, oh, this is my experience, I'm doing this and I'm off and I don't care if you guys are miserable, I'm I'm doing it. Like you included everybody. Like it was a really fun experience to be along for the journey. And like I said, that is a rarity. It's a compliment that I gave you before, but it's nonetheless, it's one that I want to tell people about you and who you are as a person because it was a fun thing to do. And I love that about good teachers. It can't be faked. I said to Michael along the way that I get it why people adore him so much and why people want to go to him to be taught by him because he really is fatherly to people in a really genuine way where he's really interested in things around him. I think a good topic, which we could probably talk on a little bit more, is probably that of being present because I don't think enough people are. And I've suffered from this myself where I've worried about things too much into the distance where it's mm-hmm. really corrupted my way of thinking and then it's had a spill-off effect into the present or, mm-hmm. you know, I've worried about things that have happened too much in the past. And I feel that when I've spoken to people and I've been involved in their journey as well, a lot of them are focused into the future. They're worried about things that are going to happen or they're worried about things that people are talking about online that haven't really manifested well into their life yet but they're still concerned about it nonetheless and they're worried that if they do something and people see it, how will they be perceived about it, that they really forget to enjoy themselves about something they really enjoy. To me, dog training is a perfect proving ground for being present. Like if you're going to do it well and you're going to pull everything from that experience that you can pull from that experience, it's about being present in every moment. Mm. And it's really easy to get caught up in the goal where you want to be the end product. It's really easy to get caught up in what people think of where you should be. There's a whole host of things that can pull you out of the moment. But if you look at anybody doing anything in my mind that they're doing really well at a high level, then they have that ability to stay in the present, stay focused, stay open to what's happening in the moment instead of projecting ahead. I mean, that's all that matters. We can't control what happened before. We like to have the illusion that we can control what's coming, but we can't. And the only thing you can control is your being in the moment. That's Mm. the time. And so dog training, everything that I enjoyed in 
my life has had some aspect of that to it. When I was young, it was rock climbing. It's very hard not to be present in the moment when you're rock climbing. You're like, it's like, it forces you to be there. It forces you to that sort of thing. Dog training, if you're going to have a career and enjoy longevity in that, you have to be somebody that can stay in this moment and not worry about tomorrow, worry about what's happening in front of you. So, And it's pleasurable too. Like mm. You see lots of stuff you wouldn't see otherwise when you're trying to be somewhere else. You, know? you quite famously don't have a social media presence. Mm. Yeah, pretty and, weak one. <laughs> yeah, which is extraordinary. I suppose you were in the zeitgeist prior to social media even existing and you probably got to ride the wave of that not needed to promote yourself because you're so well known, which is a treat. Congratulations. That's yes, awesome. I know. I, I feel privileged for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess my question is the lack of social media, a part of that staying present, like, is that by design that you do you have a secret Facebook account that is just for your friends and family type sort of thing, or you're just not on there? My wife has one. And like, if I want to see what's happening with the family, I look at her mm -hmm. Facebook or whatever that is. The school has yeah, an Instagram. The school account. has an Instagram. I, we don't. I mean, I'm terrible about posting on it. You know, it's one of those things that every once in a while I'll get a wild hair and decide that I need to talk about something, and mm -hmm. I'll talk about it, and then I'll throw it on there. Mm -hmm. But it's every couple of months or something. I put, or I have a picture of a puppy, and I decide I want to. Like, there's no part of it that that's in any way calculated to use it the way that people are using it for business. Yeah, I feel like I have to have it, like in case somebody under the age of 40 wants to find me. <laughs> like, then, then that's it. But yes, that part of it is, is calculated at this stage. You're, you're absolutely right. I'm blessed in that I had already started to make a reputation before this world emerged. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky to have had a relationship with Ed at Learberg who was willing to do the kind of promotion that makes me very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So when he started doing videos, then yeah, they're marketing me. Mm -hmm. Like they're sending out my stuff in their newsletter and things like that. All things that I'm highly uncomfortable with doing. I don't like talking about myself. I don't like trying to sell myself those all. And maybe it's, you know, it's my own personal thing. It's not, not that I'm saying that somebody that does market themselves is. No, no, I get it. Know, totally. It just, it just makes me uncomfortable. Some part of it just feels like it lacks humility on some level. And mm -hmm. maybe one of the principles that governs my, way in the world is that I truly believe that if you focus on something that you're passionate about and you do good work, that the other parts take care of itself. Yep. It may not happen right away for you, but if you do that for a long stretch of time, you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Your community will find you. Those things happen. And I do believe that on some level. That said, I could see somebody starting fresh in this world having a really hard time yeah. if you didn't, if you weren't doing that mm -hmm. world. The second part is, yeah, I don't, I don't like what it does to me mentally. It takes me out of situations and makes me think about what they're going to look from the outside because mm -hmm. you're constantly calculating how is this going to look when I put it out there. That's part, totally. part of the deal. Also, I think it gives a really unrealistic view of what dog training is. There's a lot of this little short, flashy shit mm -hmm. <laughs> that goes up there. And it looks really good and very engaging and it has a tendency to pull people in, but that's not what dog training is. Yeah. Good dog training is slow and methodical, and I've said it a million times, it's kind of undramatic. Mm -hmm. Usually the drama comes when you jump steps or did something you probably shouldn't have or you pushed somewhere or accidents, you know. But the bulk of it is a really incremental kind of process. And I think for somebody that was learning about the discipline in the social media age, it can feel 
like you should be moving faster. Totally. You should, your stuff should look like that. Nobody's out there putting up all the mistakes they made. Mm -hmm. Like here's the 150 shitty sessions I had before this yep. transcendent cut thing that I put up there. And so I also don't like that element of it. I want people to be able to kind of be in it. Yeah, for bit. sure. We've spoken about it a few times on the show. Like one example that really comes to mind, I had a, I put up a video years ago of my dog jumping onto a slap mill and doing this like quite incredible pivot on the mill while it was still turning and then having to walk backwards to stable. It looked really cool. Yeah. And I was with a client, it was someone training with an assistance dog and they were really anxious about how this test was going to go and all this kind of stuff. And they said like, I just can't do that incredible flashy stuff like you do. And I realized like how damaging even putting that video up was because I pulled my phone out of my pocket right away and showed her the 150 takes of him smashing into me and flying <laughs> off the back of the mill and <laughs> all the things that it went wrong. I agree with you totally. Like it's bullshit. We're just showing bullshit, but that's marketing. Like it, it it's is unfortunate. Like that's how it has to be. It's all part of it. We try and be transparent about that. But in order to grow an audience, you have to impress people. Attention spans are so limited yep. at the moment. You've got 15 seconds to impress people. You've got three seconds actually to, right. to sort of hook them and then another 15 seconds to engage them. It's really tricky. And I think that in that idea of staying present, I sympathize completely with you saying like you remember the past and you have anxieties about the future and it's hard to be in the time that you're in. Mm. But even having social media makes it hard to even be in the space that you're in because uh -huh. it puts your mind to like the other side of the world that is fucking irrelevant to yep. you. And I find myself doom scrolling probably once every six weeks. Mm -hmm. I have to, I have this app called OneSec that puts like a delay onto opening any app that you want. And so when you open the app, it takes a full minute for that app to nice. open. And then you have to tell it why you're opening that app. And oh, you, have to give, you have to give a reason. And it, it lets you in, but you just have to type in why you're doing it. And probably every six weeks or so, I have to reinstall that app. And I have to like, because I just find myself just doom scrolling and looking at shit that yep. I don't care about. Somehow the algorithm always an hour into doom scrolling, it's all conspiracy theory stuff for 100%. me. Yep. <laughs> yeah, mine is the ecological disaster. If I ever go down the rabbit hole, you know, it's, it's, it's awful. And it's designed that way. Right? Yeah, That's the course. other thing is like, once you know, they want eyeballs. And so, yeah. and, and the people that are, there are many people that are using it for what it is necessary for them mm -hmm. as an advertisement to let people know you exist mm -hmm. to find the people that are going to resonate with you. If somebody's going on there and they're really being authentic and yeah, I, I chose something that was a little flashy, but then when I get to actually communicate with people, I'm straightforward, honest, I'm telling them what it really is. I'm not hyping things up and giving them and I'm giving good information. Then there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with that, right? One of the benefits of the modern advertising thing is instead of splatter advertising in general, you're speaking to the people who want to hear what you have to say. Yeah. So you can refine an audience in a way that was never possible in the past. That's why people took out billboards and mm -hmm. big TV ads that would be in front of everybody. You knew that 95% of the people that were seeing that were not customers for you. Mm but you had to advertise to all of them. You had to cast a wide net kind of thing. Mm. Well, that social media is one of the benefits is you can, people start to go into their groups and find the people that actually want what you're talking about. And then it maybe it allows you to find the community that you're going to resonate with. Yeah. And if you're authentic, then I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yeah. It's not my jam. It's a beautiful thing and it's going to help people. And it is the world in which we live. I'm a realist, but the idea of eyeballs for eyeballs and this idea of monetizing clicks and views and other stuff, 
that is horrifyingly bad for the world, yeah. right? It, it creates junkies. They're addicted like they're on a drug. And it promotes conflict mm. because what is going to get people to look at it? Do something controversial for the sake of controversy. Mm. Put up something shitty on purpose and a bunch of people are going to go there. Yep. You're going to start a fight. There's going to drive more traffic. And there are people that are doing that deliberately for that. And of that's course. just, that's bad for humanity, right? I, I, I see that especially... I think TikTok has been one of the worst things for the dog space because there used to be message boards and forums and shit like mm -hmm. that, that people would really communicate on. And then Facebook and there's at least groups. And I think one of the things of like Facebook groups, like say in our, like the podcast discussion groups, like 10,000 people in there and you get some really good conversations and people can change their mind in those spaces because it's not their business public profile. It's their personal profile. And so they can engage with their peers mm. and change their mind. You could convince me of something in a Facebook group. Uh, right. I can read it and be like, oh, I see your point of view. I at least appreciate it. Maybe I've changed my mind, whatever. But I think Instagram to an extent and TikTok certainly, which is where most of the younger trainers are at the moment, yep. are newer people is there is no conversations, there is no dialogue and your outward facing profile is your business profile. Like it's really, you know, like my Instagram, it's my business as well as my personal. You can see me hanging with my kids and you can see me training dogs and you can see me like it's everything. It's just everything that I am. Yep. And so from a profile like that, people can't communicate in a way where they can change their mind about anything. And they can't communicate with open dialogue because their customers are watching. Mm -hmm. And so if you've been pushing a rhetoric and you're saying X, Y, Z is the way to train a dog. And someone says, well, ABC is the way to train a dog. First of all, the way the comments work is not very conducive to conversation. It's too hard to follow a conversation in the comments of those apps. It doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. So people end up just sort of refuting each other on their own pages via videos. But those videos are for their audience. So it ends up with like a further indoctrination yeah. and people go more rock steady in their opinions and beliefs without any ability to take on that of the other. And it, it just gets worse and worse and worse. I, I see that all the time. And every time, I mean- I'm sick of it, and I've only I've only been out of the army eight years. I've been in this industry eight years. You've fucking been here <laughs> longer long than me. You must be sick of it in that it seems like it used to be every five years or so there'd be a big spike of problems between balance trainers and force free trainers and all yeah, that kind of stuff. Sure. But now it seems that they don't even get lulls. It feels like there's a constant Non -stop. unease yep. and unsteadiness, and I think social media is to blame for that. I agree 100%. Many things you said in there are in my mind spot on, and that is one of them, the controversy for controversy's sake, and the format is not designed for open debate. Even in the, the old ones, I learned really early on, so before social media, the early dog training bulletin boards and those mm -hmm. discussion forums, I dipped my toe in there very early on and said, oh, I'm going to go on here and people, we're going to have a discussion about dog training. And then I realized really quickly that that's not what was going to happen. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like people behave behind their keyboards in a way that they would never behave to your face. Yeah, yeah. People wanted to go in there and like be an expert in front of an audience without having be able to show yourself or any, in any, and people were just super mean to each other, like bashing somebody. It immediately got to, well, what are your credentials kind mm -hmm. of nonsense? And, and there wasn't going to be a discussion. And I'm not saying that that's impossible on the internet it's possible but it has to be highly proctored yeah. and in that whole thing it really needs an environment that's designed to force that and people don't go there that way mm -hmm. i mean there are in some you know there's a botany group somewhere there when they want to talk about plant id and probably it's 
intensely moderated and maybe some interesting discussions happen. My experience with the dog training, that doesn't happen very yeah. much, right? It's the same everywhere. I spoke about on the show and I even screenshotted something and posted into our discussion group. I mean, you know, I'm into cameras and photography mm-hmm. and stuff, right? And even in those groups, people lose their minds over brand allegiances. <laughs> right. and, um, there was a post that I screenshot and shared about I'm leaving this group. Fuck all Canon users are assholes. You know what I mean? And it's like, <laughs> reminds me of arguing with my friends when I was in like sixth grade over yeah. what are better New Balance or Adidas. Exactly. You know? like, right? like, what are you doing? Exactly. And I've got a Canon and I've got a Sony. So like, oh, I don't know. No. There's nowhere for me. <laughs> Nobody likes me. Hey, I just want to circle back into this conversation when you guys were both talking about being present and so forth. The last time you returned from a seminar you were doing, you were talking about how you'd switched off social media and weren't really mm-hmm. on there much because you didn't feel that that's respectful to do to mm-hmm. your students and the people that came to see you and so forth. And I like that. I think that's a behavior that people should subscribe to more often. Again, when, you know, like speaking with Michael, when I have a conversation with him, he's not looking at his phone every 10 minutes to see who else is competing for his attention. And so, like, it's nice to be in a room. And you do this, Pat. You're an attentive listener to people and so forth. You are too, Alex. I'm paying compliments, but they're true compliments. They're not contrived because all of you guys, when I have a conversation with you, I'm not competing with somebody else who you feel is more valuable or they've got something that's edgier than what I'm saying or something like that. It's nice to be Mm -hmm. in a room with people who pay attention to you, look you in the eye and have a conversation. Like we were having a great conversation today. Like I really, I think we conquered all the problems of the universe today. We've got it solved. Even at lunch though, everyone was on their phones while they're sitting down in this restaurant. We're hanging out, having a conversation. We're talking about general data life stuff. Like it's, but we're all there. We're not our phones. We're engaged in what we're doing. Um, and the rest of the restaurants just got their phone glued to their face while they're sitting at a full table full of people that they've gone to lunch with. Yeah. Do you know what got me on that one time? I was training my dog. My dog loves to chase. Like it's highly reinforcing to run. So often mm-hmm. I reinforce the out by just throwing the ball as far oh, as yeah. I can. He loves to do that. And while he was gone, he's chasing the ball out. I had something going on. I can't remember what it was, but I got a notification on my phone and I pulled out my phone and during while I'm training the dog <laughs> and on his way back, he saw me on the phone and just fucked off, just uh, didn't bring yeah. the ball back. <laughs> and you could see that he was like, well, if you're not here, I'm not here, mate. Amen. <laughs> and it was a real kick in the dick in that session. I was like, oh, wow. Like he, that has happened enough times oh, yeah. that he has been able to read that and be like, the session's over. Like yeah. you're not, you're not playing anymore because I can see you've got that thing in your hand and your attention is with it and no yep. longer with me and away I go. It really upset me quite a bit. Now it's rare that I would ever even have my phone on me when I'm training a dog, let alone check it. It's only if it's something, you know, there's, there's something going on and I need to be contactable. I mean, we're all fighting that anyway, right? Life is busy. You have a lot going on. You're having a conversation with somebody and they're talking and there's some part of your brain that wants to plot your answer to what they're saying or come up with, oh, I know a story connected to that. Instead of really just listening to them mm-hmm. and hearing it and letting it sink you're already off. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you're drifting off completely and you're like, oh, fuck, pardon me. That they, it's fine. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> you're in Australia now. Like they just said something and I didn't even hear it. And so it's a battle anyway yeah. in the world in which we live, much less when you add that in. And like I watch young trainers come through the school and they're out training and healing and filming with one hand while yeah. they're doing the other constantly. And I'm like, 
oh my God. And I like, give it I, a rest. We, we had yeah. a conversation today where I'm separate from my wife here for the longest time that we've been apart in a long, 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 long time, many, many years. And so I want to be able to go back and share some of the stuff that happened with her. And so I'm trying hard to take more picture and video while I'm here mm -hmm. than would be normal. But I don't like to do it. Mm. Like even just taking pictures on vacation takes me out of them. I always appreciate them afterwards. It's yeah. great. Like it's a memory you can go back and you can spark. I appreciate its ability to take you back to a place and be able to spark a connection with somebody over something that happened. But in the moment I have a really hard time. Like I just want to be there. I just want to take this in fully. Mm. And when I'm trying to document it, you're a step removed all the time. Yeah. And there's a, a something for that. So somebody that's actually dog training and trying to film themselves at the same time, I just don't get it. Like, one of the things that's so appealing about dog training to me is that flow that happens between you and the dog when you're re you're both there you're really present eyeball to, everything is just connected mm -hmm. and there are these transcendent moments that happen as you flow the, like there it was we were jiving and i don't want to miss that because i'm trying to film it while i'm doing it it's yep. taking me out of it it just seems wild to me for sure that's a difficult side of it for sure the other side i think is more difficult Pat and I had a conversation about this only the other week. I think sometimes people want to be somewhere and then when they're there, they want to be somewhere else. Right. They're drifting into from location to location and they're not staying present where they are. And I often think to myself is, is this like an addiction? I don't know what it is. I don't know how to describe it sometimes. And and I don't it sometimes I don't even know how to broach it with people like without them feeling offended or wounded mm. by it, the conversation. Sometimes you want to say, like, is everything okay? Or like, do you, do you want to be here? Or mm -hmm. is there something changing? Because, you know, like I do find that people are, they're kind of looking over your shoulder instead of looking at you and engaging in you, they look past you and people feel it. Like it's felt, oh, not, no I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about people. People raise this in conversations quite regularly. I see this becoming a common complaint in the dog training sphere and in just in humanity in general. And you're right, you're 100%, Michael. People, are they want to share their experience. That's nice. They're trading off their dog over it. And oh, absolutely. What you said five minutes ago about your experience with Remy, uh, Mando did it on the couch with me the other day. He was playing with me and we were doing some exercises backwards and forwards. He went to get his ball. I pulled my phone out. He spat his ball out and he ran over and started chewing on me, you know, like in protest to say, hey, what are you doing? Like, you know, mm. he too knows that when that phone comes out, the game is over. I'm not playing with him. And then he's competing against, it's like a child, yeah. you know, knowing that their parent is not really invested in doing things with them. And then they're, they're competing with the, the attention of that object, you know, whether it be the TV, the other person, whatever it may be. But I think that's a really fundamental thing that as trainers, we really need to be aware of what is it that we're really selling? Are we selling that marketing is more important or are you selling that training is more important? There is a fine line when you're running your business we are in different times. Times change. Technology is changing. You and I, we have, Michael, we were talking about AI today. Mm -hmm. We've talked about AI and the introduction of that. And you said it's the new industrial era of our time. I think you so. know, like yeah. a dawn of something. Like the industrial revolution. I think it yeah, has the, the industrial potential revolution. impact mm. the way our world's shaped as much as the industrial revolution did, right? The huge changes and the, how rapidly that changed the face of humans. I think AI has that potential if we're not. I'm terrified Careful. of AI. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm with you, like, for uh, sure. It's just, it's so powerful. Yeah. And it's going to be so convenient. And we are a culture of convenience at this stage. We're, we're slaves to the conveniences. Yeah. And this is going to make so many things more convenient 
and we're going to slowly give up a world that that we don't know we're giving up until after it's gone. Yeah, I think you know that's. I've been saying it for for years. Before yeah. this modern latest push in AI, I've been saying the most unrealistic thing about the Terminator movies is that there was a resistance. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll yeah. just be over. It'll, it'll just, just be yeah. over. as lickety split. And yep. if, as I keep saying whenever I say that, if, if you knew what I knew about military tech, mm. you would you would feel exactly the same. Oh yeah, I have I have friends that are software engineers and things. I was just telling Glenn and. Alex today. I have a friend that's a very skilled software engineer in his late 50s. He's been around the block. He's been through all of it, write compute code in multiple languages. And he's like, I just grabbed this chat GPT, the current thing, and told it to write some code for me. You know, like gave it some parameters. And he said in 30 seconds it whacked out code that would take a good code writer a week to do. Mm. And he said, and it was good. Yeah. It was really good. Like no problem. There was no bugs. It was it was efficient. They handled the technical problems I gave it really easily. He's like, oof, programmers are gonna be yeah. a thing of the past for sure. Yeah. Like and and then that's just tip of the iceberg. Right? Yeah. Like what's theoretically possible. It's like, woo. And already I think part of the connection to this is you can't trust what you see already. Yeah. Even with just video editing and the like the deep fake video stuff you see and mm-hmm. the ability to mess with that stuff you don't know what you're seeing is actually real or totally. not and we get further and further removed from that and the more we live in that world the scarier that gets to me one of those deep fake things that really i found alarming i know we're sort of we're digressing away from now, dog training right? which, dog which happens on this show <laughs> like dog training and here we are here we are solving the world's problems but one of the things that really did alarm me the deep fake technology people are using it to clone your voice ring your parents and and say help i'm in trouble send me money yeah, yeah. scary people my mum's age and so forth who aren't used to that sort of thing if yeah, i if she heard my voice you'd yeah, easily yeah. fall for it as a tip you know like i've had a few scammers hit me up as most of us do in time to time but you know because our emails are going out further and further to people i've had a few scammers hit me up and i had one from my friend jeff scarpino in the states and jeff and i um, when I was over there at an ISCP conference and I was on the board of directors, we would often talk about motorbikes and we laughed about how we call it a Ducati in Australia and in, in America you call it a Ducati. Mm-hmm. We laughed backwards and forwards on regular occasions and every time Jeff would see me at dinner or as we're walking past in the hall, he goes, how's your Ducati, man? Mm. It's just a thing. So I got this message from Jeff, help me, um, Stark, can you help me out with this, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, hey, man, I haven't heard you from you for a while. And it was his channel. We were riffing backwards and forwards and then the clincher came, can you send me some money? And I said, sure, man, how much do you need? And he said, oh, you know, like just 200 bucks, blah, blah, blah. And I said, before I do that, do you remember the joke about the motorcycle? The response came back, yeah, yeah, I do. What's that got to do with anything? And I said, well, could you enlighten me, our joke about the motorcycle? The answer kept coming back defensive and, you know, like, let's move past this. I'm in trouble, man. Like, you want a kid around, blah, blah, blah. And I said, I know that you're a scammer. I know that you've hacked my friend's account. So I rang him straight away. Like, I rang him in the States. He goes, hey, man, sorry. The, yes, that account's been hacked. It's only just happened. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm trying to sort it out yeah. now. But had I have not thrown that keyword in, and that's what I'm trying to tell people, the education out of this point is, if in doubt, like if you are getting deep faked with anything like that, 
and you know that person, ask them an intimate question that only you and them would know and the scammer wouldn't know. Like don't just immediately think, oh, this is my child on the phone screaming for help. Ask them if they're rational and competent. Try and seed in a question where they can ask that question. Sure. Hey, you've been quite Alex. What's yeah. going on over in your little <laughs> We're not talking voice. about dog training. Yeah. <laughs> um, going full circle to what we're talking about before, though, like people not being there in the present, like – it also depends on what you enjoy at the end of the day. Like some people just super enjoy social media and that's their jam and power to them, you know. My personal Instagram is about as good as Mike's. Um, I hardly <laughs> ever post anything on it because I just, you know, the last year's been a bit of chaos for me and, you know, I just like going hike with my dog. So I took Mike to a few spots I like to go and, you know, I just like to disappear. So I don't need to tell social media what I'm doing. You're busy. Yeah, yeah I'm busy. I'm living mm. life with my dogs. I'm doing things I enjoy. I don't need every two seconds to sort of, you know, better put a story up or, you know make a reel out of something that absorbs all this time. I just like living my life, doing my own thing. So, yeah. you know, it comes down to what you enjoy at the end of the day and, you know, where's Mike's all there's some pretty sweet spots. I disappear with my dogs and, you know, that's a pretty nice spot to go to. I don't need to Beautiful. tell the world where I am because I don't want them to find out where I am. <laughs> that's my spot. Find your own. <laughs> I must admit I do like some doom scrolling on the toilet in the morning. Like there's nothing like some hilarious memes to set my day off sure. straight. Yeah. Sure. And and Instagram does tend to understand what makes me laugh these days and things that I'm going to share yeah, with. Yeah, a little bit's good. Yeah. A little yep. bit is good. Like there is, there is some very. Many like this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. There's an appropriate amount. Yeah. Hey, some dog training. Yes. 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 Mike, something I've been meaning to bring up or I want to bring up mm-hmm. is I was in Chicago last week and I was talking about how excited I was coming back. I was going to be attending this event, telling people you're in Australia. And so I was like, what's Mike's training like? And I was like, that's a great question because <laughs> the majority of the content that people – so I think yeah. that you're responsible for the education of a ridiculous proportion of the dog training community and maybe not directly – Certainly there's people like me who are mm. passing on your information. Sure, right? absolutely. You know, I had all the DVDs when they first came out and a lot of that's like 20 years old. Oh, yeah. And then I was at your school but only did like the puppy raising course and that's 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Surely in 20 years there has to be this massive evolution of things or at least you know, there's hundreds or thousands of dogs and, and students under the bridge since then. Absolutely. Things must have evolved massively. And so what I ended up answering was, you know what, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I said I'm excited to find out because I'm. there's no doubt that it's wonderful, but I couldn't tell you because my perception of you when I think of you as a trainer is 20 years old. Yep. Tell us about – things that have changed over that time and your experience Mm. of that 20 years. Nice, easy question, huh? (laughs) So one of the hard things, and we were having a discussion about this early as well. One of the hard things about teaching dog training and most of the content that I've created is about getting large fundamental concepts to as many people as possible, Mm -hmm. right? So all the nuance, the detail, the adjustments, the little things that you learn to make off of larger ideas I think come with hands-on experience Mm -hmm. and they're not best taught in videos and things like that. Right. So not that you can't put up some training and have people see it and see some of that stuff. But if you try to hit people with all the complexity right off the bat, it has no place to land. It's overwhelming. It's not possible. Right. So there's a, there's this calculated simplification that comes with being a teacher, Mm -hmm. especially with a large subject. So most of the content that I have is really big concepts, right? And then what you do and how my training has changed, the fundamental ideas underlying it all are, are still very similar, right? I haven't shifted gears. I have a kind of set of principles of which I live by my life and how I'm going to interact with the dog, right? Meaning 
I want to treat the dog like an individual. I want to make sure I'm holding up my end of the bargain. I'm being fair. I will not ethically put a lot of force on dogs for things that aren't necessary and the dog's not a willing partner in. There's some larger kind of ideas around that that haven't changed. And then when you get into there, of course, you start playing with all kinds of things. And what early on when the reward-based methodologies came out, I played a lot with shaping and free shaping and things like that. And then I ran into some limitations and that didn't like it. So a lot more mechanical manipulations, the things we talk about luring, et cetera, mm-hmm. to help manipulate behavior. And over the years for my personal stuff is I've found ways to kind of combine those. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I start to feel you like I do a lot of what I call assisted shaping where I help the dog make a connection for a little bit. And then I allow them to offer behavior things like that in the teaching phase. I pay more attention to thoughtful use of negative reinforcement mm-hmm. than I did in the past, right? There was a point at which um, I did or the classic leash pressure stuff that we would talk about, for instance, right? I've refined that over the years to a way so I get some of the benefits of breaking resistance paired with rewards. A lot of what very similar, only I would say, mechanical manipulations you would see with napopo stuff and things like that finding ways to accelerate that process teach the dog something about working through stress but not too much stress mm-hmm. get the benefits of rewards in all of that um certainly i use electronic collars more than i did a decade ago or two decades ago certainly that's moved forward we can have a large conversation about this have trepidation about an overuse of electronic collars right now not for the reasons that people think not because a tool of abuse, but because it can be hard to wean off of mm-hmm. some of the conditioned arousal that comes with excessive use on low level. Mm-hmm. There's a whole lot of interesting things there. I think probably because I was talking in the early stages to a, an audience that was primarily traditionalists in training, I was kind of a little bit of a preacher for reward-based methodologies coming into a world that was driven a lot by pressure, mm-hmm. by more traditional escape and avoidance training. I was rewarding on a continuous reinforcement schedule for too long in these early days. And okay. I've, I've modified that over the years, right? Where I'm going on to variable reinforcement in my training much earlier. Okay, I'm playing more now certainly with being able to condition arousal level to activity as well as location and things, something that we use all the time in living with working dogs. So mm-hmm. like, okay, no high arousal activities in the house. Like uh, the training field means this, but also seeing how far I can take that with exercises, mm-hmm. this exercise, I want you at this state of mind. Can I use Pavlovian conditioning to keep this at this level? Another exercise where I want you here, can I make it there? Mm-hmm. Is that a pipe dream? And there's a lot of stuff so in that world. So I think a lot of nuances changed, but the larger ideas are still intact, I think. Mm-hmm. Have you found, and I think you just sort of alluded to a yes, but if you can expand on it, something we've talked about quite a bit on the show is like, as a teacher, you're trying to move the needle, but when you're talking to a microphone or a camera or whatever, you don't know who's listening on the other end. And sometimes you move the needle too far because exactly as you said there, like your initial content you had in mind was probably going to be shown to more old school, maybe like if we were to use the term compulsion, yank and mm-hmm. crank type training, and you're trying to show them the light as to, hey, so you've got to move the needle a long way, mm-hmm. but then to someone who comes in as a clean slate, maybe you move the needle too far. Yeah. And I think 
probably true. And then, of course, it's my evolution, too. So I was coming off a world in which I had learned more traditional methodologies. Mm -hmm. So I was super enamored with reward-based stuff, too, when it mm -hmm. came on the scene. And we were like, holy shit, wow, this is a whole world. And so my experimentations with that and my implementations with that were also, I was enamored with it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to see how much I could do. And I hadn't done enough different dogs all the way through to the end, right? Mm. To know necessarily what the pitfalls of using too much reinforcement for too long were going to be. Mm. Like when you go off of continuous reinforcement after having kept rewarded a dog for the same behavior too long, there's costs to this, right? As you go along. And I didn't know where those were in terms of both reliability, frustration-based behavior, extinction of behaviors. There's a lot of stuff in there that... I hadn't felt the nuance like there's places in my career where I've had an intellectual understanding of things without having an understanding of things. Sure, right? sure. The one that's in your body yeah, where yeah. you're like, I've done this now with 14 dogs from beginning to end and I know what it feels like and I know where the pitfalls are. And so earlier on when some of the early content was coming, I was doing that to myself. I was staying on continuous reinforcement for extra time if you're in doubt. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, probably good advice for a lot of people who mm -hmm. have a tendency to go off and pull it away too abruptly. But actually, this is a project that I want to do. I want to go back and kind of not redo, God forbid, but voice over a lot of the old content. It's funny you say that because this is exactly what I want to do. So at my new facility, yeah. I was going to do it tomorrow night. It's too late now, but I want to watch older content yeah with the people that made it and give commentary on that. Let's I think do that'd it. Be, I, I'm I think super that'd be incredible. In. Like, to watch like your Power of Markers DVD yep. and watch that with you with the remote in your hand and pause it and go, ah, see, like- I'm super into that. I yeah. love, I'm thinking of Mr. Non-Social Media. I'm trying to move a whole bunch of stuff online now, right? So, and one of the things is I think this next year I'm going to start a subscription service mm -hmm. uh, just because I intend to slow down quite a bit and I'm going to, do a project that I've been talking about doing for, I don't know, the last decade, which is literally film all the sessions. I, I'm starting a new puppy in cool. two weeks, right? So, awesome. and I'm going to take them through the whole thing and I'm going to film it all, like how I live with them, the whole nine yards, right? All the train. And it'll be a daily diary thing because I want people to see how much nothing happening yeah. happening is actual <laughs> dog training. Yeah. Like it's not going to be used to the sniff. It's a, oh yeah, like this is what I did today. The puppy and I went for a hike. That's it. Yeah. That's it. Like he, he sat in the yard with the other dog today too. And then we did, of course, all the training stuff's going to be there too, but just that idea. Anyway. The so space the, between the sessions. Absolutely. hundred percent. The yeah. whole thing. Like, so you got a realistic timeline, like a year mm -hmm. is a year. Every day would have its video log in there for that. Or me talking about what I did with the puppy for that day. Yeah. An entry for every day for the dog's foundation. Amazing. Just a realistic feel for this. But part of that subscription service content was going to be me starting to do what we're talking about here with old content, older content, like sit down, do exactly that and watch it. And then I'm going to do a voiceover in here and say, this is how I'm thinking about this now. Mm -hmm. And these are the things that I think are right. These are the things you're going to watch out for that I should have warned you about then. Because <laughs> it never fails that if you're doing something you care about, that almost as soon as it's done, you're like, oh, man. I should have said this too, mm. or maybe that's oversimplified. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing gets completed when you no. start thinking like that. That's no, no you got to knock it out. You yeah. Just that's have the to. problem. That's but, the problem. And I don't, I wouldn't have had the energy to go back at that, that point in time, but yeah. now it feels like, okay, it's long enough. 
that it would be, and some of it I haven't watched since I did it either. To yeah. be honest with you, there's stuff that's 15 or 20 years old that I haven't looked at it yeah, yeah. probably since. And I'm like, oh God, this is going to be an adventure. Am I going to hate it? Am I going to think I'm crazy? Hopefully not. But I, I think the, I'll, I'll feel like it's too simple or there would be something I would want to add. And there's yeah. a format yeah. for that. That's the hard thing when you're doing content. Like I filmed a heap of stuff during COVID and I was going to do the online course like everyone else did. And then I was rewatching. I'm like, I could have explained that better. I left that out. I said that twice. Yeah. Maybe I should add that. Oh, I should have done those videos in a different way. And, you know, I never felt really happy with it. So I wasn't really happy to put it out there. I just banked it on YouTube. And if I need to give it to someone, I'll send them a link to something. But it is super hard because you over-criticize yourself on it and then, you know, you haven't watched that in 20 years and then you go back and like, oh, why did I say it like that? Mm. I think as well because a lot of your stuff was live, right? Like it was filmed as there were real students in the room. And I find, I'm sure you'd agree, that sometimes things take a particular flavor because of the people that are in the room. 100%. Yeah. That's a really good observation. Absolutely. It does. You're speaking to a specific audience and – you're tweaking your message a little bit. I have a room full of police officers. I'm going to talk police officer. I have a room full of agility trainers. I'm going to same content, slightly different Different emphasis. You know, you lean into one aspect a little harder knowing that that'll resonate and maybe they can take something on. Mm. Absolutely. I think it's the the teaching part of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did one seminar years ago and the first working spot, what was felt right, what the dog needed was a little bit of like spice in the play, you know, like a little bit of prong for misses and just a, mm-hmm. just something to bring the dog up. But then every spot wanted to do the same thing. Yeah. And so, yeah, because they see that, they get success, but now that was the flavor of that whole event. And if you would ask someone that was there that I'm a one-trick pony, that's all I know, right. right? Yeah, yeah. With the conversation where you guys are headed, it really reminds me of a scene in the movie The Life of Brian, the mm. Monty Python movie. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the one where uh, they're all pursuing him. He's not when a he's, messiah. He's a very naughty, naughty boy. boy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one where they're all pursuing him and, like, they're asking him, you know, like, the gourd, the gourd, the sandal, the sandal, and then he turns around and goes, listen, will you all fuck off? And then they go, well, how should we fuck off, Master? <laughs> but that's the I think that's what happens when you talk about that needle moving is people take things so fucking literally. Yeah, yeah. Like some people just don't have an original thought in their head. And I get people with breeders and trainers that they're trying to set up that foundation, which is important, and I validate that entirely. But sometimes they just don't have an original thought in their head. Mm. They're so fixated. Then the one person or the two people that that was designed for the other people on the outskirts all see it and they go, well, that didn't work for my puppy. You're a fraud or you've ruined my puppy or you've done something with my puppy. But I think some people forget that, yes, you have a North Star, something that you're working towards, but you've also got the left and white variances that you need to cross over sometimes. That Sometimes it's very important to be, as Pat and I were talking in the last episode, that the flexible shall prevail. Mm. People who are allowed to be flexible, remembering that sometimes when things are too difficult to return to basics, we right. had that conversation about the Silum tail today, is return to the basics, find out what's not working and am I rushing this, am I getting right. too involved? But, yeah, some people are so literal with with the message and sometimes. I, I think that's part of the early stages of journey. So as an educator, that's one of the hard things. You yeah. Know, I would be maybe a tad more charitable and say that they, they don't know better. Like if you're mm. starting dog training and – you go to a seminar, you go to a class, you're going to an expert. And what we're doing is giving you ideas and concepts that have to be modified 
constantly mm. to the dog that's in front of you. Yeah. And, and that just takes years to get good at. There's, yeah. there's no way to shortcut it. It just isn't. And so beginners tend to copy straight out. Mm-hmm. Like that's it. I saw you do it. It worked with that dog. I'm going to mechanically try to copy the same thing without any understanding. And you couldn't get through a seminar or a class if you started right off the bat, giving everybody the nuanced approach for every dog. Mm. And part of learning the feel for all of those tools is using them and using them incorrectly. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't tell you how to feel it. You got to feel it. And that means you did it on a dog. You shouldn't have done it on. Right. And that kind of thing. And you did it too hard or you did it too soft or you, whatever that is. And at a certain point, that's just the life experience of the whole thing. Now, when people are coming back and villainizing you for that oversimplification, that's something that's missing in that conversation, yeah. right? And that's their thing. There's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't matter. You are the Messiah and still somebody's going to say shit about you. Yeah, right? So totally. you're not going to make everybody happy. That's just a part Nor of the way it works, try. right? Yeah, it's yeah, not it's possible. Impossible. But that is the calculated oversimplification of the teacher is something that I'm constantly concerned with, right? Mm. And, and you know it. Like, yes, this dog needs this. I know it. If I show it, somebody's going to do it. They're not going to do it right. I cannot take total responsibility. I have a tendency to to say, say, let people know as I do things like that, that are, I go, you know, this isn't for every dog. And I try to make little connections. I don't know how many times I've said it depends on the dog kind of thing in my career, hundreds of thousands, but that's the idea there. And that's the challenge in the whole thing, right? Is, is that spot. I feel that really deeply. And that's one of the things like say, especially if, Punishment is the right answer mm-hmm. in a situation. And I find myself, you know, constantly saying to people like, these are the boxes we've ticked. Like we have checked this, this, and this. We're like, I know it, we're starting here, but it's because we have already, I can see all these other things are done. And you should make sure that these boxes are checked before yep. you get to this point if you ever intend to do this. And I'm happy to show you how it goes down. Mm-hmm. But I find myself reminding people a hundred times like, but make sure you go through this gate and then this gate and then this gate. And if you find yourself at this one, then this is how you go through this one. Exactly right. And I think that's all you can do mm-hmm. at a certain point is lay out there the fact that it's not black and white, mm. that this is useful and I think it's necessary here. And this is why I think it's necessary. And then you go forward and how people take that and what they do with it it's part of their own journey and they mm. really do have to find their way to feel through it. We were having discussions about this as well, that seminars are really bad places for this in general. Seminars are bad places to train dogs, Yeah, right? They're good places to demonstrate concepts. And if I've lined up dogs that are kind of ready to help demonstrate those concepts, it's like a visual aid for concept introduction, yeah. right? It's a tapas course. Yeah. That's yeah. what it is. It's but it's just to say this not, is what's on offer, not the entire course. Right. And it's a it's an environment that most dogs don't function well in. <laughs> you're already taking them out of their normal kind of environment. Totally. That you frequently don't know if people have ticked all the boxes. Yeah. Like the dogs act in more or less like, You've ticked all the boxes, but have you? Like, is there a hole that I don't see in this moment? And provoking problems so people can see how to deal with them. Not a good thing to do. All those things. Yeah. But how else are people going to get access to that information? They're not. And so that's the compromise that's inherent in the system. It's something you have to do. But yeah, people trying to handle their dog in front of a hundred of their peers that they're nervous as shit is being around. The seminars are always at a dog training facility, so a hundred dogs Smells pissed on that floor yeah. yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, all these things that you, you're getting them to do something they've never done before, because if they knew how to do it, they wouldn't be at the seminar. So right. it's a new experience. Yep. All the things that go into the category of cons, mm-hmm. the pros are that 
well, this is we're here to do it. Right. <laughs> like, I'm here today, so away we go. Right? You're, and you're and people are that that are eager to learn. Yeah, that that are willing to go work to get to information mm-hmm. and you have a captive audience for a period of time. So hopefully you can plant some seeds, mm. but that's what they're best for. The good thing about seminars is that it's exposure to a new way of thinking because um, sometimes I think we can be bottlenecked into thinking a certain way. Yep. You know, we're raised in a certain way of thinking and our North star can be even improved on when we meet somebody who has to some effect mastered something or then at least they're just better than you are at the time. And you can kind of look at it and say, I hadn't actually considered that. Hadn't considered the theory and I hadn't considered moving my hand that way. And they're things that I've taken away from seminars when I've been there, when I've seen somebody take luring, for example. I always thought I was a good lurer. I always had this unique belief that I was crushing it, that I was killing it. But then I saw, it was Uta Bindles that she came over and I saw the way that she rotated her hand around and how easy she made it for dogs to follow. She didn't do it for one. She did did it literally for every dog at the seminar. And I thought, that's really nice how she gets that fluidity. So we were sitting down later on that night having dinner and I said, I know you were talking to the people that you had up the front there, but could you show me how to do that? Like I'm really curious on, on how you did it. And she said, yeah, sure, let's go out and muck around with the dog and I'll show you how to do it. And she was just moving her hand beautifully and fluidly and I said, now it makes perfect sense. I know a little piece of information that's going to make a big difference on instead of my dog jamming around to try and get its head in a place, now the dog can easily follow on. And I picked that up from a seminar. It changed. Mm-hmm. It was a, just a course correction that changed a lot of things for me in the simplicity of just doing a different hand technique. Yeah. Sometimes, yes, they can jam you up and other times they can free you up. Mm-hmm. And it depends on perspective or what you want to take away from it at the time. I've been to some really flat-out boring seminars. There was a guy, I'm not going to name him on air, but there was a guy that came over from the United States. (laughs) He was a a good teacher and I'm sure that, you know, shadowing him and spending more time would have been more beneficial, but I found his seminar droll. But the last day, the last half of the last day was exceptional and it changed, once again, it changed the direction of where I was going simply because he showed me how to do some things with the downs that I'd never considered before. And I went home and tried it with my dog and I thought, oh, my God, that's revolutionized what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Like that's taken something that I've I've had difficulty and it's caused conflict with my dog and now I don't have that same expression with the dog anymore. Like It's transformative, those type of things. So I thank people for those type of things and that's why I say to people, don't go to a seminar expecting to change everything, but go to a seminar with an open mind because there will be visualizations and theory there that you probably haven't considered before. And that will really get your juices flowing to say, now I know what I really need to spend some more time on. And then get on board with that person and say, now I've seen you do this. I'm really curious to know what else you have on offer. And as you said, you know, do that online course or even come over and do a in-person course with the person and say, I love it. I'm on board. I want to bite more into this apple. And so much of it depends on where you're at in your training journey as well. Like there'll be certain seminars that I'll tell Courtney who works me, go yep. to that. You need to see that. Yes. I'll stay here and run the fort like JJ Curlin here. I'm like, get your ass up there. Like that is a gun seminar, you know, and it depends on what you need to learn at that point in time. You know, a lot of rewinding a while I started going to sport dog seminars when there was the pet dog and the sport world divide. And I was like, well, what are the sport people the best at? Their timing, their communication, their clarity, their reward placement, all that stuff. It's like I'm stealing that and putting into pet dog training because that's Mm. where all the problems lie. And even like talk with Mike Mm. over the last week, I'm like, you know, there's a couple of things that he's offering. I'm like, 
my training journey now, I think that's where I need to go learn those skill sets off him and that'll, you know, be the thing that then moves me on to the next sort of place. It's we'll all learn different things from different seminars. It depends on where you're oh, at yeah. in your headspace. And sometimes it's an analogy too. Like Courtney be like, do you do this? You know, and there are a few little things like a um, helmet seminar early in the year. You know, Courtney's like, you do that five-second thing. And I'm like, I do too, and I didn't even realize it. You know, and <laughs> sometimes you forget things. We'll talk about that earlier. Like as yeah. the information comes in, sometimes things fall out. You forget you do things along the way too. Well, sometimes you forget it, but sometimes you don't explain it as well. And I think Pat and Cam were talking in the, one of the last episodes we did about the use of terminology and not creating high levels of arousal. But the way Helmet explained it, Pat said, you know, like it was a much succinct way of brilliant. Uh, yeah. of expressing it rather than the way that we were talking about it at the time. And wordplay is so powerful. The things that you can say to people and what it can actually unlock in your imagination or your creativity simply by wordplay, mm-hmm. the way that you change the word or the words around in a sentence, you think, oh, my God, I missed that. I was at the basic level of it. And simply by rephrasing that and restructuring it is opened up a whole new kettle of fish for me. Hey, Mike, you said something a moment ago that I would like to circle back if we can. I think one of the uncomfortable truths of balance training is that at some point you're going to put too much pressure on a dog. Yep. Can you expand on that a little bit and your experiences with that, what yeah. you've seen, what you've done? So – when I opened a school to help people become dog trainers, it was a point where my training had evolved significantly from when I started dog training, right? So early in my career, bunches of forced fetches and a lot of like teaching dogs under pressure, Mm -hmm. right? The dogs were learning under pressure. And now one of my chief tenants is no teaching unless it's absolutely necessary, like life-threatening kind of things under pressure. Mm -hmm. I want the dog learning in as stress-free environment as possible, right? And then we add stress after you've learned, right? But something that I gained from that was a feel for pressure work, right? So you do number of force fetches, and in the beginning it's horrible. Mm -hmm. You suck at it. Like the dogs go through way more stress. You're not necessarily getting the results that you want. There's all that stuff. But as you work through that, you learn skills. You learn feel, for pressure and pressure release, you learn timing, you learn to stay calm when the dog isn't in such a good headspace. There's stuff there that's valuable to me to this day. Now I'm teaching people about, about dog training and I'm saying, oh, you know, there's a better way. We don't have to teach a dog purely under stress like that. Then they have to find these feelings out along the way. Mm. And where's the spot for that, right? And I have said it many times, like there's a bunch of dogs that I would like to resurrect and apologize to that I cut my teeth on and I learned things from those dogs. But how do you teach somebody a necessary skill? Because it's necessary. It's much less frequently necessary now than it used to be because we're we're more thoughtful. But you're going to encounter it. It's it's absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. And you're going to have to put dogs under pressure. You're not having training of a wide variety of dogs to do a wide variety of things without it. And as a result, I still struggle with how much of that to give newbies. And I've come up with all these ways of mechanically practicing things without dogs as much as I can. You know, here's how you hook in the leash to other stuff, mm-hmm. hook in the leash to student to student, mm-hmm. yank each other around for a while, all the kinds of stuff that, that goes with learning the nuance of that. And then they got to do it. Yeah. It's an uncomfortable reality. It just is what it is. And you try to prepare them as best as possible. You give them a little bit of idea about the what you might expect at various points. 
but then they got to do it. And you know that they're going to do it incorrectly sometimes. And you can't instill in them too much of a fear mm. that they're going to ruin a dog so that they can't commit to it. Because the other thing about that kind of work is it doesn't work at all if you're not committed, mm. right? So when you get to the point where that's necessary, you have to calmly and coolly commit to the activity. And if somebody has doubt in their head because you planted seeds, like there's another way, it's harder for trainers right now, actually, than when I came up. There's like, too many voices in their head. Yeah, and you mm. know that there are other ways of approaching things, mm. where, as opposed to when I came up, this, this is the way it's done. Mm-hmm. There weren't a lot of other choices. Nobody said like nobody was over there offering another a completely alternative approach, some slightly different version of the same thing was mm-hmm. all that was available. And so that allows you, your naivete allows you to commit enough to learn it. Mm-hmm. And then once you've learned it, then you start to get the feel for it and you go forward. Now it's hard for people to commit. And if you're the kind of person that wants to commit, I'd look at you like, hey, there's kind of something wrong with you (laughs) (laughs) and so there's no easy way around it yeah but i try to have this conversation with my students at a certain point like this is going to be necessary you have to learn this and when you do this and yes you're going to do it incorrectly and yeah the dog's going to suffer for that at some point there will be fallout hopefully if you're attentive and you stay with it 99.9 percent of the time that none of that fallout is permanent You'll be able to recover from it, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things. But yeah, it's not going to be pretty at stages while you figure this out. Mm. That's one of the hard things circling back around to all of our discussions of kind of the modern information age and social media and all these other things. There's so much information out there for people now, right? That people can gain a lot of theoretical knowledge of things really quickly without the commensurate real experiential knowledge that comes with just doing it a bunch of times. Yeah, And it's going to take you years no matter what. There's just no way around it. We were talking about this surprise for everybody, another helicopter story coming up. <laughs> Alex, Michael and I were talking about this. I was watching another video of a guy who was a, a Twitch streamer who he plays a lot of simulator games and he people pay him and he does all these flight simulations. So he knows in and out aircraft until he was asked to come to a flight school by an actual instructor. He sat in the helicopter, he knew all the startup procedure, he knew all the lights, he knew all the instruments, everything, how it all worked, backwards and forwards. He knew what every single mechanical operating structure of that helicopter was. But one thing that he never took into account was the variance of the torque of the rotor and the wind effect when he tried to get in into hover. And he threw that thing all around the place, like it literally bucked and banked forward and went all over the place. The instructor, as per normal, had to take over and grab the cyclic and stop him from throwing himself into the ground and tripping the helicopter over. And the guy said to the instructor, had you not have been sitting next to me, I would have crashed this helicopter without a doubt. And I always thought I was going to crush it. I thought I was going to get this thing into a hover in, in no time at all and I was going to execute this with ease because I really believed that the theoretical side was going to prepare me for the actual work. Mm. But it was nice, he said. It was a humbling experience. I'm so glad I did it. I'm so glad that I got to share this with all of you. And he said, because sometimes in life you go through these experiences expecting that it's going to play out one way, but when you actually put hands on, it completely changes the paradigm completely. Mm -hmm. I've experienced a lot of that myself where I've thought, oh, I really know the theory to this. And even as an experienced trainer who's been doing things for years, I've sat with people and I thought, yep, okay, I understand. Yes, I understand what you're saying. I understand the terminology you're using and I go to do it and my hands don't work the same way. Mm -hmm. 
like you said, Michael, and we've talked about it, we've riffed about this for years in our podcast, is there's no experience like real experience. Yeah. Playing it out multiple times but then not being too proud to say, well, I really need some help. I need those second set of eyes. I need that person to, you know, like I originally were learning it from to say, can you show me again or can you stand there and watch me doing it and tell me what it is that I'm not doing so well. For anyone listening, don't ever be too proud to do that because there's times – both you gentlemen have said before, Pat and Mike, is that there are dogs that I do wish I could apologize to as well because they were the recipient of my insistence on doing it a way that was just the wrong way because I was too in a frame of mind where I thought, no, this is going to work and it's going to work this way because I'm, I'm doing it the right way, but I wasn't doing it the right way. Yeah. I was neglecting to ask somebody to look in where all it had to be was five-minute conversation mm -hmm. with somebody standing there with me, regardless whether I had to pay them or not, where they would have just stood on the spot and said, Glenn, change your hand from this location to that location, and it would have made all the difference in everything I was doing. Yeah. I would hazard, though, that the Twitch guy, the flight simulator guy, if he kept practicing that all that preparatory work is going to help him. Yeah. Like of course past that spot. Yes. Yeah. But you can't expect to jump over the experiential part. You don't, there's no way of getting around it, but the prep, the more you've studied, the more you theoretically understand things, the better that's going to go for you when you get in there. You're not going to get stuck in a place. Well, leaked him ahead because yeah. he knew, like I said, he yeah. knew far more about instrumentation than a normal student would know. So mm -hmm. navigation, students, how to talk to the tower, like that side of it, he was killing it. Yeah. You know, like he wasn't a stranger to that. But getting the helicopter yeah. up. Yeah. Like I said, you know, all of these things that I've been re-experiencing, like becoming an amateur again in different things, guitaring, you know, when I was doing diving and motorcycle riding and now looking at helicopters and stuff like that, like looking at it from the perspective of starting over, when I try and have conversations with people where I know something and I think to them, why don't you know this? Like, why don't you understand this? And then I realize I'm preaching to you from a different tier and I have to bring myself back down to say, here I am with you on the same tier. We're working in parallels now. I'm not working above you or trying to look down from the heavens and tell you how you should be like a sim. I'm standing next to you. I'm with you. And I'm just slightly above where you need to be so I can guide you safely into that spot. And then we'll stop. We're done. Yeah. You know, that's the lesson over for the day. Nothing's going to beat time in the seat and getting that feel and the flow and whether it's going from a twitch to flying a helicopter or you know, we'll look at dogs. I'm kind of glad when I started training dogs, it was like kind of a pre youtube time. Like you had to watch dogs. You had to pay attention. You did. Going on. You had to get a feel, a flow. You can't just watch it and then go do it. That doesn't work the same way. You had to and drive down to a field. You had to meet a person or yep. get them to come to your house yep. and you had to do it with them on the spot. And then you'll see it now. Like I do quite a lot of shadow programs. I have trainers come and train with me and, you know, they'll watch and I'll explain as a dog's coming out, whether it's like a dog with reactivity things or whatever it happens to be. And you'll go through it all at the time and then they're like, how did you even see that? And that's, that's the time in the seat. It's the feel, it's the flow and then how you troubleshoot. And then I've tried to come up with a lot of exercises to help with those things as well. So if there's a drill that we can mock before we ever do it with a dog, we do it and then I become your dog and then you do it with me and then I can talk to you about it. We can have the conversation how to fix it until you do it properly with me, we don't do it with a dog. Yep. And it's a good way to get that feel and flow, I find, for people to learn um, in that sense. Hey, Mike, i got a curly one for you. As a teacher and as an educator, you're very well known for like extremely thoughtful, judicious training. You're very well known for doing what's right for the dog. And I think as a result, you probably get a lot of people who are maybe coming from the sort of force-free side mm -hmm. 
and would come to you for an education in the use of pressure because they know that your use of that is going to be measured and calculated and not for the sake of it. And I think you probably attract people who are the opposite as well, people who have been fairly compulsive in the past and have gone, okay, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I'm aware that that is very effective, but I want to also include a lot of positive reinforcement and whatever. So I imagine, and I could be wrong, but I imagine that you draw from both those crowds heavily. Yes, very much so. Which do you find easier to move the needle on? The traditionally trained trainers learning to use rewards. Same, yeah. Yeah, way easier. And I think partially that's, if somebody's coming from a force-free perspective, generally speaking, they're very concerned with stressful experiences for their dogs. Mm -hmm. Like it's their way of going in the world, right? Mm -hmm. They want to shelter their dogs from unnecessary stress. Mm -hmm. And that's a governing principle for them. As a result, when you go in to learn to use pressure properly, you're going to make those mistakes and you're going to see your dog under stress. And for them, it's much harder for somebody that has learned by putting dogs under stress, seeing a dog start to respond to rewards is like, oh, that's cool. Right? <laughs> he doesn't have to look the other way all the time. So they're a much easier audience to talk to for yeah. sure. Like once you've convinced them that they're not sacrificing reliability and performance and things like that because they're they're approaching it differently yeah then it's way easier for them for yeah sure. yeah that's my experience as well and i find sometimes people who have avoided using pressure in the past tend to fulfill the prophecy of all the things that they were worried about of using pressure because they make it happen mm -hmm. they put a little bit of pressure on the dog the dog doesn't like it they relieve the pressure the dog yep. goes oh that's what you want and, you know, I've seen a lot of fake shutdown dogs, you know, who oh, yeah, are yeah, like, yeah, absolutely. this is the behavior you want, right? You want me to appear as though I look like shit because yeah. that's what has stopped all the pressure in the past. And, and the dog gets over that in an instant when you show them like, hey, he's, he's showing you what he thought you wanted to see. A hundred percent. And you're exactly right. And when I talked earlier a little bit about the level of commitment that's necessary, mm. they have a really hard time committing. So everything that they do with the dog when they first start using pressure is tentative. Mm. And that's the enemy of that work. Like clarity, consistency, follow through, just this, like this is the way it is. Yeah. Is it? Like it's nothing personal, this is just the way it is. And you have to be able to go there. It's mm. like, this is it, I'm seeing this through. And that's a very hard mindset for somebody coming from the other side mm. where committing to reward stuff, the more pressure-based trainer is frequently just shedding habits. Mm. it's not a mindset thing for them in the same way necessarily, right? There are some people, but that's by, by far the minority. Yeah. I think that, that that sometimes gets really dangerous as well. I've seen people make dogs quite dangerous when they put a little bit of pressure on the dog and goes, dog goes, how don't like that? Mm -hmm. And they stop immediately. Yeah. And then the dog goes, oh, that's the path out of pressure is not looking sad or whatever else has happened. And I've seen some people turn their dogs quite dangerous. Oh, absolutely. 100%. By accident, yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt it can can happen it's something that we'll get a chance to talk about it this weekend but the idea of small amounts of pressure release incorporated into a program from the very beginning from puppy work right so there's ways in which we've chosen to deliberately cheese yielding behavior in a mm -hmm. very simple way that achieves those results and it's much less dramatic than if you wait and that was the other thing that i discovered when i started playing a lot with reward-based training, right? So I've told the story before, but when I discovered reward-based training at the beginning, I'm like, this is the bomb. Like, um, how far can we take this? And we reared a number of dogs 
shielding them very effectively from any kind of stressful experiences because we, you can manipulate motivated dogs quite well then you can achieve a lot without it but then when they ran into it the reactions were much bigger than they mm. should have been and so how do you teach that initial concept and where in the dog's development and that's where a lot of my energy goes now mm. right avoiding the big fights not overbuilding before you do this not accidentally but just small amounts of yielding at appropriate places that yeah. come along can make a huge difference but a lot of the dogs that are coming from a force-free background have never had to yield to anything yeah and if it's outside of puppyhood and adolescence early adolescence then you're going to get more dramatic reactions than you would have otherwise mm. right and so they're not only are they not going to handle it well and they inadvertently reinforce the bad behavior but on top of that you've set the dog up to have a much stronger reaction than yeah. they should to that that experience than a dog that had it taught to them earlier. I was meditating on exactly this just a few days ago, thinking on, yeah, you just see this increase in reactivity, dogs all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's multifaceted why that's happening. But I think a big chunk of that is that at puppy schools these days, it's so rare that people just go like, hey, just hang on to that puppy until he stops squirming. <laughs> that's exactly it. Yeah, that's, just, that's piece number one. <laughs> yeah, just hold him in your arms until he just goes, oh, I'm safe and comfortable. Yep. Like, because that you just don't like when I explain it to people that, yeah, the puppy's going to have a tantrum. That's yep. going to happen. And it's much easier to like control an eight week old puppy having a tantrum oh, yeah. than a two year old dog. <laughs> and I think this has been this sort of giant spike in cooperative care and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like, and I always have to be careful talking about that because I believe in it mm -hmm. totally, but I just don't have any cause to do anywhere near as much of it because when I'm young, when the puppy's young, I just go, Hey man, I'm going to hold you still until you just realize that that's in your interest. And it's totally safe to do that and I mean you no harm. And they have to learn that and it's going to fucking freak them out. Yeah. But 10 seconds later they'll go, oh, this is wonderful, I'm fine. Yep. And I didn't die. Yeah. And, 100%. And then when they break their leg. a profound effect. A profound yeah. effect. Yeah, where they break their leg or even as simple as cut their foot and you mm -hmm. go, hey, you have to lay down because I've got to fix this. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, well, we've done this before. That's fine. Absolutely. There's trust with you in it too. Yeah, but if they've never done that, then oh, you do yeah. need hundreds of hours of cooperative care to convince the dog to, to mm -hmm. lay there and, and accept your, you know, because at that point you are going to be hurting them as you're mm -hmm. tending to their wound. Yep. That's going to be a huge disaster if you haven't just got that eight-week-old puppy and going, shut up, I'm cuddling you until you relax. <laughs> Amen. And we've broken it down even further. Like, so yes, all the little puppy, I hold you until you sit, stop squirming, but we've broken it down to a collar hold, mm -hmm. to foothold, to grabbing your tail, to pinching your skin on your back while you're sitting still. Like all, there's a whole prep thing for vet handling procedures and grooming mm -hmm. that are connected to both a combination of we use rewards in it of course but also it's obligatory yeah right right away the concept of pressure and release is introduced there you have to submit to this whether you yeah. want to or not and we'll ask for they yield the pressure's released and they get a reward yeah at the same time and they get really good you can yeah. take a dog to a vet you can hold them while they get stabbed they're like okay and Malinois will be a great, great proving ground for people. All the young trainers out there getting Malinois, you don't do handling drills when they're yeah, little. Exactly. Your life at the vet is going to be a nightmare. Yeah. Right? Well, just your life in general is going to be a nightmare. They, are, they don't like restraint in general as yeah. a breed. And, and you you rear them without any. And oh, my God. Got to talk to police officers who are taking their dogs. And 
like muzzles and two yeah. guys to lay on the dog well, to get a vaccination. It's, it's funny you say that because uh, <laughs> Jazz, who I train dogs with, we raise dogs to sell to police, right? And it's not a main thing. It's something that we do on the side. But every time we've done that, there, there's a vet check, mm-hmm. right? That's part of the handover. And they cannot believe the way Jazz sits on the floor and invites these dogs. And these are dogs usually that have just demoed their bite work yeah. that are highly aroused will come and lay in her lap and just lay there and be completely still and allow her to do anything, touch her feet, whatever. And the response is always the same. Oh, my God, how did you teach that? Can you teach it to this dog? And the answer is fucking no, no way. You can't. Like it's too far gone. That, Ship sailed, buddy. <laughs> yeah. We did this a year ago. Yeah. And and that's been an intermittent thing. Every time that dog needs his nails cut, that's how it goes down. And for your three-year-old dog that works the streets and has only known, only <laughs> knows you in the context of I come out of the box, do some high arousal <laughs> shit, and then I go back into the box – this is never going to happen. Nope. Not it. <laughs> I would not, hate to know what Titan would have been like if I didn't do that with him as a puppy. Titan's a 55 kilo Chablan. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's a hell of a lot of bear and, you know, you, he's done cruciates, meniscus, rejected yeah. plates, teeth issues, elbow dysplasia, like you name it, he's had it. Like no vets or rehab girls touching that dog. Yeah. You know, but if it, it wasn't done. I think a big part of it and one of the core tenets I find myself talking about, especially in raising a puppy, is I think that the first thing that puppy needs to know is that it's safe and that mm-hmm. it's loved. 100%. That, that's a huge part of it yep. is being like, hey, I'm going to put you in uncomfortable positions as your owner, but you're in no danger from me. Mm-hmm. You are totally safe doing yep. this and you have to understand that. I love you. you. No one will ever bond with you as much as I intend to and you are never in any danger from me, but I've got to demonstrate that to you. Like, I think that's one of the things that people – you can't – explain shit to a dog you have to show it It, 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 in order for a dog to believe something it has to be true and and i think that's what's missing from so much handling of dogs from pets to working dogs and everything in between but you've had to do that with baby children too when you're trying to give them medicine to make them feel better yeah you still have to wrestle the pill into their their mouth when they don't understand yeah there's times it's got to go down yeah but you know what works the best with kids sorry Mike. but one of the things i've got a video of this and i've wanted to post it but i just can imagine people losing their minds at it is one time with actual my youngest son when he was maybe six, seven, eight months old when he had COVID, trying to give him Panadol, right? And he didn't want it. Mm. And it's a syringe full of stuff. And yeah. you know what got him into it? I pretended he couldn't have it. <laughs> and like, I was like, showed it to him. and was like, oh, no. Right? Like, no, this is mine. You can't have it. Yeah, and it's exactly like I would do if I had a dog that I not that interested in the tug. I don't want you to have the tug. The more yeah. I want you to have it, the more you don't want it. I was uh, like, no, you can't have this. And brilliant. like lured it away from him to the yeah. point where I showed it to him, like pulled it back, and he was like, fuck, give me that. And uh, 10 seconds beautiful. later, he's got it. That's beautiful. I do that all the time when I crate train puppies. I'll like get them used to being in the crate. They'll run in, they'll be happy, and they'll chuck a handful of food and drag them back. Yeah. They also do like a restrained recall to send them oh, to their sure. crate. Yeah. And yeah. They hammer in there, and all of a sudden those issues and suspicions about the crate, good luck getting them out of there. They yeah. love it. Exactly. But I think what's instructive on in all of this is that pressure type work introduced at the appropriate developmental stage mm. is non-dramatic too, mm. right? So- we have these ideas about the use of pressure and stress and these big overt dramatic responses that we see. And it's almost always because the work wasn't done at the right stage developmentally. Yeah. We talk about it all the time with outs and things like that. Mm-hmm. You teach an out at the right stage to a dog too early. The dog's not ready for it. You're losing motivation. You're dropping the compassion too long and you introduce conflict and there's more likely to add stress, yada, yada, right? And you do it at the right time and if you, it's really easy They get the concept quickly and pressure work is exactly like that to me. Like introduced at the right stages, it's mildly stressful, Mm -hmm. which is what you want, but 
not much. The dogs figure it out quickly and it defers the big stuff later on and getting people to kind of recognize that because they're like, why are you, I could shape that. Yeah, I could, I could shape my dog being touched and handled for rewards exclusively. Mm -hmm. I could touch your collar with one finger. Yes. Give you a reward. Two fingers. Yes. Touch one foot. Yes. One reward. Do the whole protocol for months and and months and months. And my dog's there. He's really into rewards. So beautiful. He'll let me do all this stuff to him. Guess what happens when he gets stressed? It's out the window. Gone. Yeah. Yeah. Gone. And so, yeah, the, the, the yielding is critical and it, and it's easy. It's, it really isn't hard. Yeah. Just get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Life is uncomfortable. There's no way of avoiding it. And listening to you guys riffing backwards and forwards about this, there always has been a concern with most of the groups that I'm talking about when we're discussing the theory of this is low thresholds, like people constantly coming in at low thresholds or even rewarding at low thresholds or allowing the dog to control at low thresholds without trying to build it, or stress thresholds I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, after a period of time, if, if the dog is introduced incrementally as we've been speaking – we start to find that the dog is very comfortable in all these sort of situations. And as you said before, it realizes, well, you're the person that I trust in the most. You're the person who has proven to me that you're a reliable leader, you know, or a reliable companion, somebody that I can count on when the chips are down and I can look to you. And if you say it's okay, it's okay. You know, we can go through this and travel through this together. And therefore you start to see the threshold increase. The dog feels better about itself Anything that you start to encounter and the dog starts to thresh, it looks to you, you say, you know, you give it a signal, whatever it is, you say your calming phrases, whatever you do, and the dog goes, well, we've been through this before, like we've been through this handling technique or this handling management before. But again, you being the smart person, knowing, reduce the increments, the expectation on the dog, it's not hard. It's something that people just need guidance in because... You're right, Michael. I think people lose their temper too quickly. You know, like they take it personal and they think, oh, you're just being silly. You just need to calm down. But they don't understand and they haven't really rationalized with perspective. Like they haven't thought about how scary really is this from a species who doesn't understand the newly introduced concept that's going on. I've had to go through all this myself. I'm sure everybody in the room has had to go through this yourself with learning how to raise a child for the first time and, you know, all the puppies that we started in the early days that we were training with because I I remember my old boy that I point to up on the wall there, Harley, I did the best I could with what I knew and most of us have done that but I really wish I had my time over again. Mm -hmm. He was a really good dog. Like he he was far better than what I was ready for at the time. And I lucked into it in a large degree because I wasn't ready for what happened next with the next dogs because then I expected, well, Harley could handle this. Surely you can. Mm. And you just have to follow form of what and how good he was. You have to be like that. Mm. And some of the dogs crumbled under it. They just could not handle that. But that was growth for me. That was really where I shifted perspective on that again. Like it's nice listening to people talking about this and it's nice that we're advising people, slow down, smell the roses, take it easy. If you're not sure, ask, come and see somebody who can actually show you what to do. Take your time. You don't have to rush this. This is an incremental phase made up of multiple increments that's going to happen over a longer period of time. It doesn't have to be solved today or tomorrow. You know, it can be solved in a month's time if we incrementally space ourselves out along the way. You touched on something that I think is an important part of the conversation as well is the emotional aspects of it, right? So one of the hard things for a lot of people is that we all get into dogs because we love dogs, we love our dogs, and people have a hard time calculating 
pressure training situations. Oh yeah. So they tend to let them happen when life throws them at them mm. and they are in an emotional state that's incompatible with handling it correctly. Like I can't do this work right unless I'm a little mad and a little frustrated and fed up with you. And that's when I decide to have the conversation. It's the wrong time and the wrong state of mind for you to be having the conversation. And so the calculated versions of this handling drills and things like that, um, allow you to sit like, stay calm and this is not personal like i'm not mad at you i don't wait till i'm frustrated to teach you about pressure that's the worst possible way to do it right mm. and if you don't plan it then there tends to be an emotional component for a lot of people and it's also what i noticed that a lot of people that are reluctant to use pressure they won't use it until they're mad mm. until they've gone off the cliff and they that's need, a good point they need to be in a certain state of mind emotionally mm. to commit to it and that's the wrong state of mind to take into the work as well totally yeah yeah and often then uh, in their own context as well. They exactly. wait till afterwards, yeah. Yep. How do you feel about the industry currently projecting forward? It's a good question. How yeah. do, it's a super good question. Like <laughs> yeah. your finger's on the pulse. You're involved yeah. with everyone and everything going yep. on. I feel, like many things, conflicted. On one stage, I'm super optimistic. Like the number of trainers out there with skills and information is more than ever before. Mm -hmm. I see so many young people coming up that have chops and they're smart and they're thinking right and they're getting access to good information right off the bat. That part of it. They have what? Chops? The, yeah, chops. What's that, that mean? Uh, skills. Like, yeah, like. Uh, chops means uh, you've got skills in okay, this game. Yeah. You've got, you've got um, technical skills. Cool. Right? So, And so that makes me super optimistic what's possible. Yep. The part that's upsetting to me is the economic aspects of dog training and mm -hmm. what it's doing to training. So the rise of the inboard training program, you know, trainers these days, and now I'm going to offend a whole bunch of people and I apologize off the bat if you're not one of these people, but inboard training, I think has possibilities for helping training situations a lot. Like somebody with skills takes a dog maybe out of an environment, installs some skills, but if it does not incorporate the people that are going to own and live with the dog, it's not usually performed in which the environment in which the dogs are going to be performed. There's a lot of pressure on trainers to do too much in too short a period of time mm -hmm. and they're charging a lot of money so they better produce results and I see a lot of bad stuff happening around inboard training, mm -hmm. right? And it's not being properly transferred back to the owners. And it could be, there's a possibility, but the model that would allow that would be very expensive mm -hmm. and not inclusive for most of the world. So I think a return to some degree to one-on-one -on -one training in which you're helping people learn how to train mm -hmm. and learn how to handle and transferring it to the environments in which the dogs are gonna perform is a better model with calculated inboard work for specific issues mm -hmm. or maybe to speed up certain things, but immediately re-involving the owner. And there's a lot of economic pressure on dog trainers to offer this, and there's a lot of competitive pressure to offer too much in too short a time, which mm -hmm. is very bothersome to me, right? Mm -hmm. I think the time's a big part of that too, though. Like, you know, you say you want to do a training board and people go, oh, we're doing two, three weeks, but reality is you're scratching the surface in two, three weeks. You're yeah, not getting anywhere nothing. near. It should never be sold as work. that it concludes everything. It should be sold as this is the beginning of the journey. All I'm doing is fast tracking. Installing okay, foundations. To actually give your dog some skills that then you need to seed in on and you need to continue this journey. We offer it. I agree with you yeah. there. It's thwart with issues and it's a conversation that we've had backwards and forwards 
not only our company, but multiples of companies where board and trains have been offered and the perils around it with trusting that a trainer can be able to complete the job adequately and then be able to transfer it, not only pragmatically, but also academically across to the owner that they actually know this is the theory that I need to know and this is the skill set that I need to know. Look, I've had great trainers before that can communicate very well with people. I've had others that haven't been able to communicate mm. so well. I've had trainers that have concentrated too much on technical, theoretical jargon, which has just confused the shit out of people. And when they've come to pick their dog up, now they're even more concerned than what they were when they dropped the dog off. Yeah. And that in itself is a pitfall. It's spaghetti. It just turns into a complete and utter mess. The board and train industry, it can be a, a technical aspect. It can I think be it a, has potential. It has potential, just, but it, it, it needs to be done right. It's a lot of pressure for a trainer that's coming up to talk to somebody and be really honest about what that's going to achieve mm-hmm. and how much, when they're going to pay you $2,000 a month or more, who knows, God, who knows, right, at what p- people are paying you to train the dog and you telling them like, hey, this is what's realistic for me to accomplish in this period of time. And then guess what? We have a bunch of work to do outside of that to get this transferred over to you so that you understand. Yeah, that's the conversation that must happen. And it has to happen up front, right? Not after you said like, hey, I want to convince them to hire me. And then, and a lot of people are afraid if I tell them all that, they're not going to hire me, right? Mm -hmm. That they're, they're going to basically have to train the dog too, right? Then what, why am I doing it? And it's a difficult conversation, but it's essential. Yes. Like that you be absolutely upfront about all of that when you're doing inboards, if you're going to do them well, and then the amount of energy it's on you too, for trainers, it's hard. Like it's a psychological thing that you're paid for the inboard and there should be follow-up and that follow-up is as important or more important than the inboard. Mm. And people start to flake off afterwards and you're like, Oh, well it's on, it's on them kind of thing. And off it goes. And then that reflects poorly as well because they're not going to follow through on the other end of it Mm. i've come to think that our job is really if you're helping people train their dogs you're a cheerleader for getting people excited about what dog training is possible like and somebody that just wants you to train their dog it's not a good recipe yeah there's a dog out there goes through a board and train somebody does it it was an easy dog to begin with that dog does pretty well it goes back people are happy yeah they were going to be happy anyway ultimately right but for many many dogs that's not going to go well if you can't excite people about the process and get them on board. Right? I need yeah. to follow up with a question on that then. What do you think about the phrase, don't get any more invested in the dog than the owner for a trainer? For sure, the owner's the most important part of the puzzle, right? The dog's the easy part for all of us, ultimately. Mm. If you're a good dog trainer, then people's dogs say, I could take your dog and your dog's going to be just fine. It's going to be really easy for me to do this. But that's not our job. That is absolutely not your job. There are people that have some peripheral jobs that just deal with dogs, but that's pretty uncommon, right? You are a teacher of dog training to someone who doesn't want to be a dog trainer Mm. if you're helping companion dog owners, right? As opposed to, I have this lovely luxury of teaching to people who really badly want to be dog trainers. So my job is easier. But when you're dealing with the general public, it's not. You have a reluctant trainer Mm. they want a dog that listens to them but they don't want to be a dog trainer Mm. and your job ultimately is them to get them to want to be a little bit of a dog trainer Mm. they don't have to be a professional dog but you've got to get them to want to be a little bit and that's people skills it's that stuff it's not Mm. dog training that's my biggest concern with the you know tool bands and whatnot on the horizon is i just Mm. think 
like for us as dog trainers, you find a way. If that if you can't use the tools anymore, yeah, sure. fucking hell. Like it'll be a pain in the ass, but we'll manage. There'll be things you can't do. Whatever, it'll be fine. But it's when you say to a person like, "Hey, we just turned this two week fix into a twelve week fix." Yeah, that's when the average pet owner goes, "Fuck off!" I'm not. No chance. Yeah, yeah. I'm not living with this hell for another mm-hmm. twelve weeks. I've put up with it for the last two years. Yeah, <laughs> and I called you. Yeah, and I need this fixed immediately. And. Certainly there's been dogs under the bridge that I've had to go, hey, sorry, man, we got to fix this quick. Mm-hmm. Like, And yes. the worst, and I'll never forget, was a, a Doberman. They told me it was a Friday afternoon. They said, if we don't see light by the end of this session, we're putting this dog down tomorrow. We've made the appointment. And so I said to that dog, I was like, hey, man, I'm, I'm <laughs> oh, very sorry. Ahead of time. <laughs> I, I'm very sorry about what's about to happen to you. Oof. And if I had more time, it would go a very different way, but I'm saving your life here, yeah, right? Yeah. When that's off the table, yeah. that's my concern. And it's a legitimate concern for sure. To me, I'm front and center these days in the arguments in the U.S. about banning of tools e-college specifically is the big one that's starting to crop up. And there's all these arguments about, you know, efficacy, stress levels, all these things, which are important for people that actually know what it is to train animals. For the general public, it's a bunch of gibberish, generally speaking. And for most policymakers, it's gibberish, right? To me, one of the most important arguments that we can make is the ableist argument, Mm. right? That the electronic collar is a potential equalizer mm-hmm. that is democratic and egalitarian. Yes, I can do this without an electronic collar. The 70-year-old woman cannot, Yep. period. And the alternatives to this don't exist for those people. So what about people with disabilities? What about people that have bad hip or yep. whatever? The, all these things. So you're taking an entire tool away. That's an ableist policy. Mm-hmm. And I'm finding that that's going to be the tact for talking to a lot of policymakers because mm. they have constituents out there who couldn't function the other way around. Yeah. Right? And you focus on that kind of thing over what we would love to focus on as dog trainers, which is, yeah, this tool is not what you think it is. And this is what really goes on and that, and that's important for dog trainers talking to other dog trainers, but that's not the people making the decisions. Unfortunately. Mm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. That's a good move. It's heavy conversation. We covered some varied and interesting grounds. Sometimes it's some of the best conversations. Yeah, for sure. To to get deep in the weeds because otherwise you're just, sometimes you're covering old ground over and over again. It's nice to hear it from perspective. For me, I just wanted to sort of add to that. I think our audience kind of knows the ethos that you and I subscribe to. You know, Alex, your people know who you subscribe to and so do yours, Michael. Mm -hmm. But you know, like I said, getting to know you and, and as most people do and the way that you've been described to me, if people knew what a reasonable person you are as a kind of naturalist and somebody who cares about nature and cares about people, you as an advocate for tools and so forth, for me, that's a much easier sell. It's still difficult that some people would, wouldn't look at that and go, well, this is a guy that really gets into nature but still advocates for the use of tools because of the equity behind it and how it's going to resolve a lot of problems between the canine-human relationship. Oh, yeah. But they and still, the rest of the natural world too. It, I, I get it. Not but, they're but killing they're, critters. <laughs> but they're still hung up on it. Like they just they yeah. don't want to know about it. And yeah. that's always been a, a troubling aspect for me. And I guess multiples of us, we just don't understand that. I'd like to understand that. I really would like to see behind the curtain and really, really understand it. I get it from an emotional point of view. I get it that people's concerns. I get it that people don't want to hurt their dog. And I get it that people have seen those awful jerk-offs on YouTube that are making their dogs 
jiggle around and scream and do all those sort of things or there's kids that are frying each other on sitting in a car and one zapping the other one while they're in a supermarket, all these silly videos of people misrepresenting tools. Mm. And people see that and they're fearful of it for all the wrong reasons. They don't understand the super benefits of it. And as you explained, there are people like us that may not need them. We may not need them. We can probably say, look, it would be a pain it would take longer but we can get around it. But there are people out there who legitimately will suffer and so will – I can't even put a figure on the amount of dogs who will pay for it without those tools. Oh, no, it's a huge, you know, yeah. the, there will literally be a, a canine holocaust. It will be like the example Bart used with all the carting dogs. Yeah, um, exactly. You know, like when they decided that it was cruel because one politician's wife didn't like it, they were literally – King's wife. Yeah, the king's yeah. wife, Yeah didn't like it in Belgium and suddenly the next day there were so many people that couldn't survive if they had a dog without the means to be able to provide an income for it and then there were just thousands of dogs that were instantly euthanized that next day shot yeah. in the head and put in a ditch because it was pulling carts it was yeah. Yeah. pulling yeah. carts was banned yeah. in Belgium and yeah. still that law remains you know that's why Bart's bicycle thing technically the dog is pushing the bicycle the way that not the, pulling it yeah <laughs> yeah and that's why because it's illegal it's for illegal. a dog to pull anything in that's in Belgium madness. Isn't it's it? Wild. It's crazy. Yeah. 150-year-old law. Yeah. Laws once in place are hard to change. Well, that's the problem is it's the insidious nature of politicians to do what they think is best for them rather than what's really, an, you know, like and, an altruistic and, and, good. And ultimately part of their job is they can't do their job unless they're elected. And so some of it is I don't think it's necessarily what's best for them. Their job actually is to enforce the will of the people, mm. right? That's their job. Enforce the, majority. the will of popularity. Because the, the, the majority, majority of people, yep. yeah. Yep. And so unfortunately, populist ideas are not always right. Mm. Like if you start talking about what's true, and but that is literally the job of a politician, not to go against his constituency, not to go, his people told him, this is what I want, yeah, or him or her. Their job is to provide that. And so they're not going to be, sensitive to the other arguments no matter how germane if the bulk of their constituency feels differently they just mm. that's not what they're supposed to do and it's hard to determine that these days because oh, you can be very hard. noisy yeah. a very small group of people can be very, very noisy, noisy these days 100 yeah. Yeah. yeah how do they measure it and that's the tricky part there's so many complicated things involved in that yeah <laughs> it's, it's unfortunate <laughs> i'm gonna do the wrap up i gotta go train some dogs yeah, in real I'm life come, that IRL. really good but man i'm sure you hear this a lot I don't want to blow too much smoke up your ass, but I think <laughs> he's getting used to it. <laughs> he's so, gonna, he's gonna puff. He's gonna be like a dragon when he gets home. He's oh gonna, no, it's no, the plan so is. humbling. It's but insane. the truth is, in our industry, you are something of a lighthouse in that you guide the way to many, many people. And what's admirable of you more than your capability with dogs and more than your capability of teaching people, which are exceptional, is that you don't ever seem to get involved in any of the bullshit. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's, trait. that's actually fucking incredible. And I think that that gets overlooked somewhat. Mm. And I think that that is, aside from your ability to, to guide people in the way they actually do things, the way they comport themselves is, I think, one of the main things that I think you provide us in the industry. And so I wanted to point that out and thank you for that. Yep. I concur. Thank you so much. It's humbling. My whole trip here has been humbling in that sense. I appreciate it. I try hard. It's it's on purpose. Like I think mm -hmm. that that's the best way to influence the world, mm -hmm. right? And the fighting and the taking stances. I mean, somebody has to be an advocate at some point, but I found that if I can 
rise above those kind of petty arguments and focus on principles, then it's been good for me in my life. And I feel like I honestly believe on some level that if it's going to go in a positive direction, that's what's going to do it. Right. Totally. Well, the vitriol doesn't help. Right. In that sense. So it's super gratifying to hear people I respect say that kind of thing at this point in my life. And so coming here has been I'm like on the verge of crying all the time because people are saying these incredibly kind things, you know, when you've spent a life doing something to travel halfway around the world and have people say this kinds of things that you've made impacts on their life in a positive way, it's just insanely gratifying and humbling. Like it makes me well, feel good about how I've spent my life. So thank you all for that. And, and I, I appreciate it more than, you know, pleasure. It's well pleasure. deserved. Perhaps, Michael, in your training endeavors going forward, you know, whether that be online or in person, maybe you could teach people how to have some old world charm because um, (laughs) what you're doing is not contrived. You don't have to try to do this like it's not pretend. And, And like I said to you today, you're not a pretend cool guy. You're not that person that pretends to like people and be invested in people. You are all the originalities of that personality. Pat made a good point of it. Alex has made a good point of it. Multiple people have, like people who I've talked to you about before because we've never met. Yesterday was our first physical meeting. In-person meeting. It was a very surreal experience for me. Like I said, I've grown up with you. We all have. You've been an original teacher of multiples of people. Even in my 30-year time that I've been involved in this, like there's still not many people. I don't know anybody that I know in my circles who don't know you and don't know some of your teachings and don't hold a flame for the things that you've been doing because they advocate for the things that you're saying and they like what you did and like the way that you delivered it. That whole platform was just, it is exceptional. And again, I'm trying not to sound like I'm being a suck up because I'm just trying to sound sincere and just tell you from all of us, like everybody in this room, like we all owe you a huge debt and it's well beyond us. Like it's incredibly beyond this community everybody is so nervous and excited about seeing you. They were in Melbourne and they now are in Sydney because you're really a prophet of some really great information. I think I've spent a long time being cynical about some of the people I've met because they have talent, but they do it for sometimes just for the wrong reasons. And you don't like you do it for good reasons and you still remain a humble and a, and an empathetic person at the end of the day. So yeah, I totally agree with you, Pat. I think you nailed it. It's been an incredible experience. Thank you so I, much. I was guys. intimidated to meet you at the start because I, I was worried that all of the things that were told to me, you couldn't measure up to, but you've exceeded <laughs> it, to be honest, mate. It's And I know it's that sometimes that puts a pressure on people. You're not going to put this out before the thing, right? So <laughs> setting the bar high. No. Yeah. <laughs> but, Stamp down expectations. No, nah, well, he's really, he's kind of a prick, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Never meet your heroes. That's uh, terrible. Well, that was the thing, right, is that's okay. what I said when Cameron was here. I said that's a phrase that is echoed, never meet your heroes, because I have. And, and I have put unfair expectations on people before and I understand the pressure of that um, and I have met them and I've been uh, disillusioned by them but I haven't with you. Like I haven't seen anything that would disillusion. Like you, you've exceeded everything. And But that's what I'm saying Thank is you, you don't try and do it. It's not contrived. It's not like you've put on a show or came and pretended to be anybody. You just, you're an original person. And thanks for that because I'm, I know that anybody in this room who's sitting in the chairs with you wants to be a better person because of your influence. So thanks, Michael. Like Thank it's, you. it's pretty awesome, mate. 
I'd had people ask me like leading up to the seminar and stuff like, oh, are you nervous about Mike coming home? I'm like, no, I'm excited. Like I haven't seen you since COVID started. I was I know, at your school. Bit, like, yeah. And, you yeah, know, but you I'm, met him before. I yeah, I'd been to the school. I was nervous. Like, six, seven times we were trying <laughs> to figure it out the other day and it was like I was so excited about it because, you know, you've been one of the most supportive people that have sort of helped me in my journey of dog training, change the way I look at everything and it's uh, – I got to go. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. It's, well, it's, it's, it's yeah. incredibly kind. We're going to name yeah. this episode the Michael Ellis Circle Joke. <laughs> yeah. You're starting to get a little bit of an idea, though, the number of people that you've touched across the world and the way you've changed the way we look at dogs and helping more and more dogs. You know, it's, it's been a lot. Thank you very much, sir. Oh, you're entirely welcome. It's totally humbling. But just to close out on that, but what I did say, it, I told this to Michael yesterday when we are having a conversation, is – I feel that as a population, we wait until somebody has gone or expired or left, you know, like passed away before we all stand around and say nice things about them. And I don't like that. I don't like that it has to be a eulogy before you tell someone how special they are to you and how much they mean to the greater community. It's nice that the person can actually go away and think, I'm glad that I've touched the lives of people and I'm glad that people cared and I'm glad that people have saved a dog because of something that I did or anything like that. I really feel that that is something that we miss and it troubled me when I I saw, you know, my mum's partner passed away and all these people crying and saying, I wish I had have said this to him yeah. before he passed. And I thought, why don't you make those moments and tell people? So you guys have all done that in spades, so thank you, thank you very, very much. Yeah. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. Then just go to another one and do it there as well. Who knows, right? Yeah, there's some of them. They don't know really you didn't nice. listen there. Yeah, they don't know. All right. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is to jump into Patreon. Yes. A few bucks a month. I just put something in there the other day. Just a little excerpt. Get in I, there, guys. I saw and I saw people responding to Hierarchy of signals. I saw new members coming in. I saw people upgrading their tiers. Thank yep. you very much. You're a couple of bucks a month will get you some giant backlog of information as well as new stuff going forward. Yep. Other live streams every month. They get in there and just answer questions. Yep. Another way if you want to support the show, you could just buy some cool merch. Yep. Do you still want a Lamborghini? No. Okay. What do you change? Lamborghini. What do you change? To? Helicopter. I'm going to give it to you. <laughs> you well, to... at least get one that we can fly together. No, nah, mate. I, I, I'll fly it. Yeah, use you, you fly it. I, my experience with helicopters is I sit on the skids and carry a gun. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just keep my friend that has been in many, many crashes away from you. Yes, please. Yeah, uh, I don't want to meet that guy. So jump into spring. Get yourself some cool merch there. Socks, underpants, water bottles, all mm, those things. No water bottles. Uh, or underpants or socks. Yep. And if you want to get in contact with us, best way to do that is to jump into the Facebook discussion group. Mm. You can group source some information in there. Just don't be a dickhead to anybody. That's our main rule. And if Excellent. you want to shoot us an email, we are info at the canineparadigm.com. Goodbye. <laughs>